What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Now let's look at the passages that we read just a few moments ago as to what the incarnation really was. What did it mean? What happened when a baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? Well, first of all, look back with me at John chapter 1, and let's read verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The book of John begins with a description of a person called the Word. Now, I mean, you want to give your children Bible names, but I don't know of any Christian that have named their son or daughter Word Jones or uh, Word Smith or whatever. But here, the second person of the Trinity is called the Word. And notice what it says about him. It says he's distinct from God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning of the creation of time, before the creation of time, there was a person called the Word who was distinct from God. He was with God, and that Greek preposition with means in the presence of, before the face of, denoting fellowship. So here before the world was created, there was this person called the Word that was in fellowship with God Himself. And yet the next phrase tells us that that person was also himself God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here you have a person who is equal with God and yet distinct from Him. And you have one of those passages that from which we get our understanding of the one true and living God as being a trinity. One God in three persons simultaneously, each person equal, not one subordinated to the other. And so here you have the second person trinity, whom we know as Jesus, called the Word of God, distinct from God the Father, and yet of the essence, one with, the same as God Himself. Now why is He called the Word? Well, what's the purpose of a Word? <clears throat> a Word is a means by which you express what's on your mind and what's on your heart. And it is through the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, this person who is with God and who is God from all eternity, it is through the second person of the Trinity that God reveals to His creatures what's on His mind and what's on His heart. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God revealed Himself to His people through Christ, even before He was born of a virgin. Throughout the history of the universe, He will always and only reveal Himself through His Word. Now notice in verse 14, it says, that Word through whom God reveals Himself, who is distinct from God and yet God Himself, the Creator of the world, the source of knowledge, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In other words, when He was conceived in Mary's womb, 
This person who was God from all eternity became fully and truly a human being. He possessed all the properties of a human being, except for the fact that he didn't sin. And he, he had all of God's perfections. So whatever you can say about God, you can say about Jesus, and whatever you can say about man, you can say about Jesus, except that he was and is without sin. So now the way you say it is that Jesus is one person with two natures. Not one person with two persons. That'd make him a schizophrenic. But one person with two natures. He's one person who is fully and completely God and at the same time fully and completely man. Indivisibly and inseparably united. That is, God doesn't become human and Jesus' humanity doesn't become divinized. They are distinct but never blended, never confused, inseparable. Jesus is one person in two natures. Now, although these two natures are united in one person, each retains its respective properties and perfections. Now, that's important because it keeps you from heresy if you don't understand that. There is a hymn that I love, except for a couple lines. It's not in our hymn book. If, if they change the words, someday maybe it'll be, it will be in our hymn book, but it's not now on purpose. And it is that great hymn, And Can It Be? You know, and can it be that I should gain? Well, there's two things in there that are heretical. The chorus says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? God never died. God neither suffered nor died in the death of Christ. You can't kill God. That person who is God and man died insofar as he's human, but God didn't die. Also, it says in there that he emptied himself of all but love. We're going to see in a minute that's one of the worst heresies ever conjured up by Satan himself. He emptied himself of all but love. Everything he was before the incarnation, he was no longer that except that he was loving. He wasn't the same God. We'll come back to that a little later in the message. Well, how do we know that Jesus is God? Well, there's only one way, and that is for him to tell us. And in the Bible, there are several strands of arguments by which Christ has told us unmistakably that he is not only distinct from God, but equal with God himself in these ways. Number one, the Bible gives Jesus names and titles that belong only to God. I mean, Jesus is called, given names that you can only give to God, like God or Lord or words like that. And then also the Bible attributes to Jesus perfections that belong alone to God. He's almighty. He's able to stop the storms. He is omniscient. He knows what's in the heart of a man. Also, the Bible records words of Jesus which only God can speak. Jesus said things only God can say. Son, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Only God can forgive sin. And then the Bible describes works and activities to Jesus which only God himself can perform. Like being the judge before whom someday the entire human race will stand. And then lastly, 
the Bible instructs us, the same Bible that instructs us to give worship and reverence to God alone, instructs us to give worship and reverence to God in Christ. Like Thomas did when he saw the resurrected Christ and fell at his feet and worshiped him and said, my Lord and my God. Well, how do we know that he was fully human? He had a physical body. He had a human soul. He had human faith. He had human emotions. In fact, the greatest article I know of on the emotional life of our Lord was written by Benjamin Warfield, that if you call, I'll be glad to uh, uh, get Zimmy to copy and send it to you. While remaining no less than God, in possession of all that makes God God, Jesus was and is at the same time really man, possessing everything that makes man man. Fully God, fully man, in one person forever. I love what J. Gresham Machen said. He's one of the greatest, one of the two or three greatest Presbyterians and Christian scholars of the 20th century. And here's what he wrote. The doctrine of the deity of Christ is part of the biblical teaching about God. This person whom we know as Jesus Christ would have been God even if no universe had been created. And even if there had been no fallen man to save. He was God from everlasting. His deity is quite independent of any relation of his to a created world. The doctrine of the incarnation, on the other hand, is part of the doctrine of salvation. He was from everlasting, but he became man at a definite moment in the world's history. And in order that fallen man might be saved, that he became man was not at all necessary to the unfolding of his own being. He was infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God when he became man and after he became man. But he would have been infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God even if he'd never become man. His becoming man was a free act of his love. Ultimately, its purpose, as the purpose of all things, was the glory of God. And that purpose does not conflict at all with the fact that it was a free act of mercy to undeserving sinners. He became man in order that he might die on the cross to redeem sinners from the guilt and power of sin. So in his incarnation, Jesus Christ was fully equipped to be everything he needed to be to be the Savior of sinners and the Redeemer of mankind. He became human because if he was to identify with human sinners, he would have to be human so that he could die in our place. He had to be God so that when he bore the weight of our sin, he could continue to live and give infinite value to his atoning death. And he had to be God and man in the same person so he could live and die at the same time and save those that God sent him to earth to save. Christ's incarnation took place miraculously in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now we often speak of the miracle of Christ's virgin birth, but there was not any real miracle about his birth. I mean, he was born like everybody else is born. The miracle was at his conception. That he was conceived in a young woman's womb who had never known a man. It says, the angel said to her in Luke 131, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. That was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 714, 
which Matthew uses and identifies uh, with Mary in Matthew 1.23. And Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and your English version will say, A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What Isaiah literally wrote in Hebrew is, The virgin, not a virgin, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall uh, will call his name Emmanuel. There's only one. Only one woman in all the history of mankind that fits the description, that fits the description of this prophecy. The virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. The liberals and critics of the Bible have beaten themselves nearly to death trying to keep this verse from teaching the virgin birth of Christ. And so as a result, they will tell us that the word virgin there doesn't mean virgin, it means woman. So that the woman will be with child and bear a son, the, the maiden, the unmarried woman. And she'll, she'll call his name Emmanuel. And they say it doesn't say she was a virgin. It just says she was a young woman. Well, first of all, the, the word virgin there never ever is used with reference to married women. And secondly, what do we know about this virgin in Isaiah 7, 14? We know that she's unmarried and good and pregnant. Now, how can you be unmarried and good and pregnant unless you're a virgin? And so here you see one of the passages in the scripture where the virgin birth is taught so clearly. My former professor, William Charles Robinson, wrote it this way. He says, as our Lord's divine nature had no mother, so his human nature had no father. The son of man was no man's son. The virgin birth has guided the church in her efforts to understand and state the union of God and man, and this break in the ordinary generations descending from Adam has presented one unstained by original sin to be the sinner's substitute. The virgin birth is integral to the virgin life and vicarious life and death of Jesus Christ, to the truthfulness of the Gospels and to the church's faith in the incarnation of the preexisting Lord. So here we have the Word who was with God before eternity of creation, who was God, taking upon himself human flesh. And even after he took upon himself human flesh, it says we beheld the glory of God in him. He didn't lose the glory of God. And what is God's glory? It is the sum total of all of his perfections. Now let's go to Philippians chapter 2. And let me read verses 5 through 8 again. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's the classic statement of the incarnation of Christ, and liberals have also beaten themselves to death upon this passage, trying to make it say something it doesn't say. Now let's look at several phrases here. We're going to look at the phrase, although he existed in the form of God, and secondly, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The next phrase, your version says, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and for he humbled himself. 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let's look at each of those phrases. First of all, it says that Christ existed in the form of God. The word existed in Greek is better interpreted pre-existed because the word exist there means continued being and existence from eternity. So when it says that Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, it's teaching you that he's eternal, that he shares the same perfections of God, that even before the world was created, the universe was created, Jesus, the Son of God, apart from his humanity, was there as the second person of the Trinity. He never had a beginning, just as God the Father never had a beginning, and God the Holy Spirit never had a beginning, nor will he ever have an end. He is the eternal Son of God who existed from all eternity in the form of God. Now, we have a problem with that in English because in English we don't mean the same thing by form that Paul meant in Greek. When we use the word form, it's something external. You have a form and then you have something inside that form. And what's inside the forms really matter. You can have a form, something that looks on the outside like it's something, but on the inside it's entirely something different. Well, the word form can be interpreted very accurately the way Paul used it as essence. Because the word form to him meant that unique feature of a person that gives him his uniqueness and his essence. So that whoever is in the form of God is God. That's what he's saying. He's saying as clearly as he could in the Greek language of the first century that Jesus is God. He from all eternity existed in the form of God, in the very essence and being of God himself. And the next phrase, God, Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, equality with God here doesn't refer to Christ's essential equality with God. So that it's saying, well, he was equal to God before eternity, before his incarnation, but now after his incarnation, he's no longer equal with to God. Now remember, the incarnation was by addition, not subtraction. That the Lord Jesus Christ lost nothing of his deity when he was born of a virgin. He who took upon himself the form of a servant remained in the form of God. He was just as much God with all of his perfections after his incarnation as he was before from all eternity. So he didn't give up being equal with God. What this phrase has reference to is being treated as God's equal. God's equality as far as his being treated and honored and praised as God's equal. He was willing to give that up. I'm willing to take upon myself the form of a servant and not receive the royal treatment that my creatures deserve to give me as God. I'll lay that aside. And I'll take upon myself the form of a servant. And I'll let them criticize me. And I'll let them beat me. And I'll let them ridicule me. And I'll let them fail to treat me with all the respect and dignity and praise that I deserve as God's equal. And I'll do it all for their salvation. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus did not become poor by emptying himself of his divine perfections. He became poor by taking upon himself the form of the servant, all the while remaining in the form of Almighty God. Even after he was incarnate, the Bible says of him that in him dwelt all 
of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then our New American Standard Version have this phrase. It says that Christ emptied himself. That's one of the worst mistranslations ever to be found in any English version of the Bible. And as a result of that mistranslation, it doesn't say he emptied himself. But as a result of that mistranslation, one of the most damnable heresies in the history of Christianity has plagued the church. Why is it a mistranslation to say, as well as an incorrect translation, to say that Jesus in his incarnation emptied himself? There's two reasons. One, because that's not what the word means. There's four times in the New Testament in which that word occurs, and every time it is used in a figurative sense, meaning to make no account of, to make of no reputation. So the King James Version is exactly correct in its translation of that text. Christ made himself of no account, of no reputation, did not assert his divine prerogative, but took upon himself the form of a servant. And then there's a second reason why that word should not be translated emptied, and it's simply this. Christ emptied himself of nothing in his incarnation. Now, you would be surprised at how many people are shocked at a simple statement like that, of how many people believe in this kenosis theory. That's the damnable heresy. Kenosis theory. The word kenosis comes from the Greek word meaning emptied. Or translate empty, meaning took him himself with no reputation. And this kenosis theory teaches that when Jesus became human, he renounced all of his divine perfections, like his omniscience and his omnipotence. And as one described, uh, his incarnation, therefore, was by divine suicide. He emptied himself of all of his perfections, all of his cosmic functions, all of his eternal consciousness during the years of his eternal life. He was a great God before, but when he became a man, he became eminent in this creation. It was not the same God as he was before he was incarnate. You say, well, that's obvious to me that that's silly. Well, not really. I was talking to a preacher one time who wanted me to come to his Christmas concert. And to be ecumenical, I did. And so I listened to the songs, and most of them were pretty good, and the singing was great. But I wish the concert had ended right before the preacher got up to preach. Now, I knew that this preacher was not reformed. And he stands up in the pulpit after this great concert, and he says, God is almighty and sovereign over everything. I'm sitting there about in shock. He says he has everything under his control and does whatever he pleases, and no one can stay his hand. I'm all ready to shout. And then he says, but when God became a man, he gave it all up. Now, beloved, that was not in New York or San Francisco. It was in coming Georgia. He gave it all up. He's no longer sovereign, the omnipotent, the great transcendent God he was before his incarnation. He's something less and something lower. I gave this talk, a version of it recently, and a man came up to me when I, I made this statement. I said, Christ didn't empty himself of anything. He was still God afterwards as much as he was before his incarnation. And the guy came up to me and he said, 
He said, you know what really attracts me to God? Is that he gave up some of his perfections. And he limited some of his sovereignty to be my savior. I mean, I just felt like crying at that point in time. You know, a God that's less than omnipotent and sovereign incarnate can't do you any good whatsoever. If he's not able to overcome your sin with his omnipotence and he's not able by his sovereignty to overcome your choice against him, then a non-omnipotent, limited, sovereign, incarnate son will do you no good. I didn't tell him, man, I was nicer. Now, the problem with this kenosis theory is, number one, there's no verse in the Bible that says that Christ emptied himself of his perfections. And secondly, Christ is the unchangeable God. And if uh, the Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and day and forever, and how in the world can an unchangeable God ever change into something less than what he is from all eternity? And then the last phrase in Philippians 2 that we'll talk about today is that he humbled himself. He humiliated himself by taking upon himself our sinful nature, our, our uh, humanity, by becoming subject to the demands and curse of his own law, by being obedient the entirety of his life on earth to that law and all of his thoughts, actions, and suffering, even to the limit of the shameful death on the cross. And he did all this to save his people from the humiliation that sin would bring upon them by being humiliated himself. You see, the, the incarnation is a glorious thing to us. Oh, how glorious it is. The most important event in all of history. History has not been the same since the incarnation of Christ. It's a glorious event. But understand, it was pure shame and humiliation for Jesus to take upon himself our humanity. And he did it because he loved us. And as a human being, he wanted to do everything that needed to be done to satisfy God's laws and to satisfy the claims of those law against us. And so he willingly humiliated himself and took upon himself our flesh, obeyed the law perfectly in the place of our imperfection, and then became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross, to satisfy the demands of God's law that we be punished for our sins. He did it all for us. Now, let's move up into history from the Incarnation, which took place about 4 B.C., I think in April, to 451 A.D., in autumn of that year. In fact, let's go in our time machine to the middle of October. From the middle of October to 1st of November, A.D. 451, which was a time for which all free people should be grateful to God. And let's go to a little teeny one-horse town that's known today as Ismet in Turkey, I-S-M-E-T. Have you read about Ismet recently in history, in the newspapers a few years ago? Massive earthquake took place in Turkey, destroyed I don't know how many cities and how many people. The epicenter was right in Ismet. Everything in Esmet was destroyed except the ancient church in Esmet. 
Ismet, I-S-M-E-T. It's near modern Istanbul, Turkey. We're there. It's 451 A.D., except back then Istanbul was called Constantinople, and Ismet was called Chalcedon. In that little city was an official meeting of the entire Christian church, that old city of Chalcedon, or if you're from California, Chalcedon. But the decisions that were made in that little council have influenced history for 1,600 years. There were 600 preachers there in attendance that important autumn, including representatives of a Roman Catholic Pope Leo and, more importantly, representatives of the Roman Emperor Marcion, who anxiously awaited the outcome of this little council. Now, in the early church, we're going to see this on another Sunday evening, there were a lot of official councils that met to try to, to kill the various heresies that were misleading people about Christ, about the Trinity in the early years of the church. Particularly were there a lot of heresies that denied the, the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. And so it was particularly at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. that the truth of the person of Christ was hammered out in its many aspects and implications. The response of the Council of Chalcedon to all the heresies that were about in the early church was essentially this, something you know from heart, and yet this is the foundation of Western liberty. Without this statement and belief in it, we never would have freedom. And the Council of Chalcedon said this, Jesus Christ is one person with a truly human nature and with a fully divine nature. He is the second person in the Trinity, united with the human nature, without detracting from or confusing the characteristics of the human nature and the perfections of the, of the divine nature. One person, two natures, one divine, one human. His humanity was not deified and his deity was not humanized. Now, why in the world would an emperor care? I mean, here's an emperor of the mighty Roman Empire who has representatives at the Council of Chalcedon declaring that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man and one person forever, then goes into detail describing uh, what they mean by those words in theological language. How could this decree of an early church council affect a Roman emperor? Well, here's how. The prevalent philosophy of that day was the Greek idea that everything's made out of the same stuff. Whether you're God or man or a beetle, everything's made out of the same stuff. Some things are more important than other things, but whatever God's made out of, we're made out of, and whatever uh, a termite's made of, that's what we're made of. We're all made out of the same stuff. And then growing out of this was the belief that the ultimate and highest order for human society is the state, is the civil government. You have one stuff, and you have one order that controls all this stuff. And so they believed that the civil government was the highest and ultimate order for society that should embrace and encompass everything. Everything else, including the church and religion, must be subservient to the state, they believed. The citizen is subordinate to everything in everything of the state, symbolized in its head, the all-controlling central government, Caesar. 
The citizen with all his children, property, and possessions, they believe, belong to the state, body and soul. The state must embrace and regulate and control every area of life, including how the gods are to be worshipped. Plato, the famous Greek philosopher, taught that children belong less to their parents than they do to the state. They believe that the state is the manifestation of the divine order of things. In its head, the human and the divine meet, and that's why the Caesars all believe themselves to be gods. That's where God and man met in Caesar. Therefore, man must yield to the central government total allegiance, give up all thoughts of independence or meaning outside of its totalitarian authority, and be unquestioningly devoted to the defense of the state, no matter what it tells you to do. The state is beyond criticism in this view, as it regulates plans and orders every factor of human society. Now, remember, I'm talking about ancient Rome. Do you think I was talking about America? Me? Talk. This political theory developed into a kind of coercive utopianism, which believed that the state would bring about a perfect order of existence by means of law, regulation, welfare, and bureaucratic control. The state would be the answer to all man's problems, whether it be poverty, cultural deprivations, mental disorders, disease, ignorance, family problems, or unemployment. For the Christians at the Council of Chalcedon, the issue was no mere irrelevant doctrinal issue between opposing parties. For them, they understood, they were self-conscious of the fact that the issue we're talking about is between Christ and Caesar, Christ and the emperor, Christ and the tyrannical state. Who is man's savior? To whom does man owe his total allegiance? What is the basis of law, order, freedom, and morality? Where do the human and the divine finally and ultimately meet? In Christ or in Caesar? In Christ or in the state? Is it Christ or is it the civil government who is God walking on earth? Christianity and human freedom were at stake in the answer. If the voice of Chalcedon had not been heard, the truth of the divine human personhood of Christ would have been undercut, and the way would have been cleared for the resurgence of the old view that the state is the highest visible form of life and order on earth which demands all of man's obedience and which in messianic fashion will relieve man of all his ills. Chalcedon declared boldly and clearly that Christ, not the state, is, walk, is God walking on earth. The point of the Chalcedon formulation is plain. Jesus Christ is mankind's sovereign and savior because in him alone and not in any human institution, neither in church or state nor in pope or emperor, do the human and the divine meet in one person. For the sake of the gospel and human freedom, the formula of Chalcedon must be understood and maintained today. The loss of Western liberty is the result of the West's loss of its faith in the divine human Christ. To reject the perspective of Chalcedon is political and cultural suicide. Where Christ is recognized as supreme, man is free. Where the state or any other human institution is recognized as supreme, man is a slave. For the Christians at Chalcedon in 451, it was neither pope nor emperor. It was clearly Christ or tyranny. Now I call upon you, members of Chalcedon Presbyterian Church. You're going to be of use in this, to Christ in this world. 
Just live up to your name. I think in all the history of Christianity, there is one person that has understood the impact of the incarnation of Christ on the history of mankind more clearly than any other person. And she was a 13-year-old, probably 13-year-old, Palestinian, unmarried virgin named Mary, who wrote a song under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us what the impact of her son's incarnation would be on the history of the world thereafter. That song we call the Magnificat, which is recorded in Luke 1, 39 through 56. Rush Dooney gives us a concise summary of its point. He says it declares that the birth of the Messiah is the sign of victory. The king, God incarnate, comes to claim his kingdom, to dethrone all his enemies, reverse all the priorities of men to establish in their stead his priorities, and to rule in strength and mercy and grace. Mary put together the various promises of the Old Testament in one joyful hymn of triumph. Mary is not so much singing her song about heaven or of the new creation after heaven and after the last, after the last judgment, that is. But this song of this 13-year-old virgin is focused entirely on history. And what happens before the end of history because her child is born? She didn't doubt the reality of heaven, nor did she think that heaven was unimportant. She knew it was. But she was singing about what her son would do in impacting the human race. And it's the third stanza of her hymn that I want you to look at this morning. Verses 51 through 53 of Luke chapter 1. Mary sings of a, her song about a great reversal of things she said now remember that Old Testament prophets would use past tense verbs to make prophecies about the future to impress us with the fact that these prophecies are as sure to come true as if they'd already taken place because they have taken place in the mind of God so now she's making a prophecy about the impact of her son like an Old Testament prophet he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Now I want you to notice that stanza. It has to do with scattering the proud, bringing down politicians from their throne, exalting the humble to those political thrones, filling hungry people with good things, and making rich people hungry. The point is that Jesus Christ, according to his mother, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is bringing a great reversal to human history and human society on the earth, a mighty transformation that began with his incarnation. And beloved, don't spiritualize Mary's words. Don't confine them to the spiritual or heavenly realms, for to do that is to trifle with the word of God. What Mary meant is unmistakable. If you spiritualize what she's prophesying, you must spiritualize the incarnation itself, and then we have nothing. What is she singing about? She's singing about the scattering and bringing down of people and cultures based on the principle of revolt against God. 
She's telling us that their dominion will not last and their attempts at unifying the world in its rebellion against God will not succeed. God will overturn their efforts as easily as he did the Tower of Babel. She's singing that Christ will exalt and satisfy the humble people of God. The mighty and ungodly will be dethroned and the blessed meek of the Lord will be exalted as they inherit the earth. The hungry people of God will be filled and the wicked rich will be cast out to beg. This reversal will be as literal and as radical as Mary said it would be. Those who are in power politically, economically, socially will someday not be in power. And Christians who are not in power will someday be in power. The reprobate who are now millionaires will someday be paupers. And Christians who are in serious need because of the wicked culture in which they live will someday be millionaires. Those who are proud and full of self-love will be humiliated. And those who are full of love for God and humility will be exalted. That's what she's predicting. A tremendous reversal that will result in time and history on earth in the history of mankind will result in the triumph of godly men and women and godly families over all their enemies and the exalting of God's church full of godly families in places of power and prosperity throughout the earth. Therefore, Christians must expect Christ's kingdom to advance. So we must be prepared for the reversal by enforcing the kingdom's laws, living its life, believing in its power, and obeying its mandates, confident of victory and success in the power of the Spirit of Christ. Through Christ and His body, the church, with the Word of God, Almighty God will dethrone all His enemies, giving His people total victory. Mary's Magnificat clearly prophesies the total victory of Christ and the complete uprooting of the city of man. The anti-Christians will be openly confounded and turned out, and the people of God openly brought to power and victory. Faith in this total victory of Christ through his people produces and sustains in us a healthy disposition that keeps us calm and confident and humble in times of storm and that keeps us active and persevering in difficult times of persecution. Because Christ, not man, is king, his kingdom will win. And what's the impact of Christ's incarnation on history? The total reversal of everything you see now. 1866, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland heard an old and worn-out Alexander Duff preach a sermon of 30 pages. That's more pages than I preach. He wore himself out on the mission field in, in India serving Christ, and he knew he'd never see his favorite place, India, again. He concluded his long sermon with this moving plea. He said, Let us press forward. Resolve that we shall not desist or pause in our onward cause and career of victory until Christ's crown is triumphantly planted on the last citadel of the hitherto unconquered realms of heathenism. Now those are the words of a man who understood the impact of the incarnation on the history of mankind. And the key to seeing those words fulfilled is perseverance. 
Perseverance, first of all, in Christian living, in spite of sinful impulses and the temptations of our culture. No matter how strong those impulses are to sin against God, keep your heart with all diligence. No matter how alluring and strong those temptations and seductions are from our culture, persevere in well-doing, knowing that if you don't grow weary in due time, you will faint, you will, uh, we, will, we will win if we do not faint. Persevere in Christian living in spite of all of the enemies you have within us and all the enemies you have around you. Second, persevere in Bible study and reading good books. Don't slack off of reading the Bible every day. Read good books. You read the newspaper, you watch the news, you watch football games, all these other things. Read books. Be known for being a reader and lover of books. Persevere therein. One of the most important things I ever did was read the 1,000 pages of Augustine's The City of God. Brother, that takes work, but it was rewarding. Persevere in worship. That's where you get your power, to persevere. Persevere in the Christian education of your children, whatever cost or sacrifice, and watch out for the danger of homeschools. Now, if I were preaching to a bunch of public school people, I'd say, watch out for the dangers of public schools. We could list those all day long. But now, after having watched the homeschool movement for these, what, 20, 20, 30 years, there's some dangers that scare me to death. One danger is that parents are cheating their children. We reminded you the other day in terms of education. We make promises about homeschooling and Christian... And I'm a homeschooler, remember? We make promises about homeschooling. We make promises about Christian education. And there's going to be some homeschooled children 25 years from now who are going to want to see these promises come true and they won't come true and they're going to hate their parents for it. Because the parents are cheating them out of a diligent Christian education. Remember, I, I reminded you the other day that if that a homeschooler can learn in three hours... What it takes a public school child six hours to learn so that if you're teaching your children three hours a day, they'll know every bit as much as a public school student will know. Not much. Our children, I want them not to just to know as much as a public school. I, I want them to know more. I want them to know more and be sharper and have a better comprehensive worldview in understanding life than even the sharpest of the public schools children are and have. They're going to be parent children. I pray not from our church. That are going to grow up. And if you compare them right now with children their age in public schools, they don't know as much. They can't read as well. And then we find some reason to justify our failure and our laziness as Christians and our willingness to be de distracted by everything else in life. And hopefully our children will get it in three years. The danger of homeschooling is you won't educate your children. The second danger is they're going to believe everything that's in the homeschool textbooks. And many homeschool textbooks are woefully, woefully less than what they ought to be. I'm thinking now of one particular textbook on American history that is a pathetic history book. 
but it's used by homeschoolers all over the place. So that you can come to a Reformed church, you can hear Reformed preaching on Sunday, and then your children for three hours a day get all this stuff from Christian textbooks that compromise what they get on Sunday. Check your textbooks. Make sure they're being taught the truth. Make sure they're being taught more and truthful things. Be persevering, parents. I mean, it's hard. The more children you have, the harder it is. Be persevering. Whether they like it or not, be persevering until they do like it and love it. That's what I love about these little history classes that I teach. About 35 teenagers here, 100 somewhere else, 20 somewhere else, 30 somewhere else. I'm try, I, I'll tell you right now so that you can decide whether you want to send them back to my history class next year. I'm training them to be a bunch of Christian mujahideen, to be Christian holy warriors in a jihad, to overthrow all isms and exalt the one true and living God in his word. Jehovah is great. But sending me once a week isn't going to cut it. You've got to be persevering in the education of children. Do not slack off. Do not let them slack off. Just because it's summer, don't let them quit reading. Be persevering in training your sons and daughters to be true sons and daughters. Do your sons and daughters even know what sons and daughters are supposed to be like? Persevere in evangelism and church building. This is the base. The local church, not some local organization, not some institution, but the church is the basis for the reversal. That's where the reversal will spring from. That will be the center, the heart of any reversal this world. Not some organization led by some charismatic leader, but by the local church. Elders, deacons, preachers. That's where the action is going to be. Persevere in church building. Persevere in prayer. Because ultimately it's only the Lord that can do these things. Persevere in standing for Christ in American culture and standing against evil. Past the point of weariness. Don't let anybody intimidate you to leave the battlefield. I know it's get, it's, it, it gets old getting shot at all the time. And I know in this battle there will be many casualties and fatalities. Don't leave the battlefield. Don't lay down your arms. You get to rest when you die. Then you can rest forever. Until then, persevere in the battlefield in opposing evil and standing for Christ everywhere you have opportunity. And persevere in believing God's promises in spite of what you see. Don't walk by sight. Walk by faith. Don't let what you see determine the extent or the intensity of your commitment to Christ and this great reversal and to the advance of his kingdom. But believe God's promises to be true in the pages of Scripture no matter what you see. Even if everything around you appears to be contradictory to the promises, believe the promises. 
Don't walk by sight. Walk by faith in the promise of God. Persevere in these things. Some of you have been here for a while. Remember a story I told years ago about my son Joey, who's now 30. Can you believe it? That's how old I was when I came to Calistine. 30. Well, when he was about 10 years old, we lived on Ponytail Road, five acres out there, of nothing but big old tall, skinny Georgia Pines. My son Joey wanted me to fly him a kite in August. And I didn't want to disappoint him. So I go get the kite, put the tail on it, put the string on it, do everything you're supposed to do. Now the only place on this piece of property that had any openness at all to get a gust of wind was the gravel road that led from the main road to my house on an incline. And there hadn't been a gust of wind get between those Georgia pines and Sherman burned Atlanta. But I didn't want to disappoint my son. So I'd run myself silly up and down this gravel road in the middle of August, almost to the point of heat stroke, and Joey trying to encourage me and help me after having listened well to his daddy's sermon, kept infuriating me because the whole time as I was running up and down the gravel road, Joey kept hollering out, Persevere, Daddy, persevere! That's key. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant us perseverance and well-doing, knowing that in due time we shall reap if we do not faint. And we thank you for the incarnation of Christ and for the faith to believe it. Amen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.